0: Over the days of the retreat, you've heard us refer probably a few times to a teaching or a discourse given by the Buddha called the Satipatthana Sutta. Um, this discourse is very central in to what we've all been doing here over these days. And although you may not know it, it, this discourse is actually pretty much the root of all mindfulness-based applications. So it has something to do with us. When the Buddha used to teach, he would always begin his teachings with this word, ehi pasako which means come and see, or come and listen. And in another teaching called the Kalama Sutta, the Buddha said that you shouldn't believe something because it's written in hundreds of books, and you shouldn't believe something because it's dispensed by many people who seem to be authorities, or people who've you know, stated this over many years to be a truth. He said, when you hear this teaching, you should take it into your own experience. You should take it into your own life. You should check it out in your own experience. And if it proves that this path or this teaching does indeed lead to the easing of distress and sorrow, only then should you take it on board, so to speak. And if not, it is of no use to you. Now, I think it was last year or the year before, one of our national newspapers, The Guardian, did this article on mindfulness. I think the title was called Enlightenment in a Raisin. <laughs> and it was published under the section of trend spotting, which indeed should have alerted me to what might come next and this journalist then wrote this article and it said the latest craze to come out of america <laughs> <laughs> and i we talked to this to john about this the other day with a smile And it said 25 years ago in America, John kabat Zinn invented mindfulness. And I I was trying to find this article and I didn't bring it with me because it really would have made you smile. And and it went on, you know, about how mindfulness is a cure for everything, you know. And at the very end, it talked about the banking system in England was even getting a little excited. about the prospect of being mindful. Anyway, I was a little, I, I read this article, and it made me smile, and, but I thought this was really a piece of sloppy journalism, so I emailed the journalist, and I said, you forgot to put two zeroes after the 25, you know, it <laughs> was a slight inaccuracy. But I think it is very important to remember for 20, more than 2,500 years, people have been doing exactly what you've been doing over these days. That all around the world at this very moment, people are doing exactly what you've been doing over these days. And there is something in the human heart that really longs, I think really yearns for the possibility of finding a greater inner freedom. A calmness of heart, an alignment with the way things are, an end to distress. And it is a quest that has, you know, arisen in, of course, all spiritual traditions. And yet the heart of that quest is, of course, what arises in the very ordinary human experience. That longing, that longing to understand really what we are doing here and how to be here. How to be here in a way of sanity, of kindness, of compassion, you know. And in in many ways, everything, you know, all of the texts, all of the teachings, are simply ways of supporting that longing. Now, the of Patana Sutta. It's a very pivotal discourse. In it's a very pivotal teaching, certainly in this tradition, because it's a discourse that really emphasizes mindfulness or sati as being the path to liberating insight. And sati or mindfulness, as it's often translated, is translated in a lot of different ways, sometimes as attending to or being present with or establishing mindfulness within. At times, sati is translated as standing by or standing near. And tonight in the talk, I want to explore a little bit some of the attitudes that are really emphasized in the Satipatthana Sutta, or the discourse on wise mindfulness. Now, the discourse began, begins with a, actually a statement that John read last night. And it's a very powerful statement for the beginning of this discourse. When he says, there is, bhikkhus, our noble ones, a direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for attaining the way, for the realization of liberation, namely the four sati patanas. Now, these four satipatanas is what we've been talking about over these days. So I've often translated as foundations or ground, the places that we establish mindfulness within. We establish mindfulness within the body, within feeling, within mind states, within the dharmas or all of the objects, the phenomena that arise in the moment. And the Buddha described this, he says, what are the four? A bhikkhu, a noble one, abides contemplating the body in the body or as the body, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. He, she abides contemplating feelings as feelings, Mind as mind, mind objects as mind objects, fully aware, ardent, mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. So these are what we've talked about these days, body, feelings, mind. And in a way, our practice here has really been dedicated to exploring this landscape, of our own being. And this is the best line in the whole discourse. If anyone should develop these four foundations for seven years, for seven months, for seven weeks, even for seven days, they will come to know direct and profound liberation. <laughs> Got three days left. <laughs> Three days left. And I think these are actually really promising words because in a way it's sort of paradoxical because it describes this journey really as a a journey of liberating. Liberating, moment to moment. But it also describes a, a journey, as you've probably discovered, which is pretty challenging. It's pretty challenging to sit with our minds, our bodies, feelings moment to moment. Now, this, te- this discourse and this path, it, I think in a very real way, it almost holds the whole of this teaching. And as we've mentioned a few times, in the context of the time in which the Buddha lived, it was radical. And in our time, it's radical too. When we think about the culture of aversion, the culture of pushing away, the culture of resistance, the culture of prowling the world, longing for something that is going to deliver us happiness. This was the culture the Buddha and countless other people lived in 2,600 years ago. There's a timelessness to aversion. There's a timelessness to resistance. You know, there's a timelessness to this sense of being lost. Now, in his time, you know, Siddhartha followed these very well-worn pathways of resistance and aversion. In fact, he became, you know, a wandering ascetic, almost starving himself to death as a way of, of overcoming the body or a way of transcending the body, he undertook a whole range of ascetic practices to subdue his mind. And in many ways in the culture at that time, that was really applauded. He left his family. He left the world. He, he left his relationships. He left his place in life in order, <laughs> as a way, he thought, of getting rid of suffering. Now, of course, you know, it, it it shouldn't surprise us how many kind of subtle and extreme ways people in our time really follow those same familiar pathways. We see it in the extreme disorders, you know, of, of anorexia and self-harm. We see it in, in more kind of subtle disorders of, you know, the endless argument with the world, the forcing, the imposing, the trying to to manipulate the world to be the way that we think it should be. How many times do we even find ourselves here thinking, you know, if only I had a different body, if only I had a different mind, if I had a different roommate, <laughs> if I had a different meal, if I had different weather, you know, if I had this, out of the other. Oh, I'd surely be happy then. I'd surely be happy then. It's, it's what we, I, think I call it sort of postponement practice. Mm-hmm. You know, when this is over, then I'll, I'm going to really be mindful. <laughs> you know, when I've managed to fix this, then I might practice. I'm, then I'm going to be able to practice. You know, then I'm going to be able to practice. Now, there were several turning points in Siddhartha's journey, and it's very important to hear these just as, as kind of metaphors. There are several turning points that really frequent, and frequent uh, stand out in Siddhartha's journey. The first of these turning points was when Siddhartha lived as a fairly privileged young man, surrounded by luxury, every wish indulged, and went out of his, his kind of opulent surroundings into the poverty of the village around him. And in those journeys out, encountered the reality of a person, an elderly person, frail, vulnerable. Encountered the reality of a person who was very ill, very sick. Encountered a person who had died. And in all of those encounters, he would turn to his companion and say, Would this also happen to me? And he would be told, yes, you too. And he also saw in the crowd uh, the face of, of, uh, of a wandering monk, serene, radiant. And this encounter is, is called his encounter with like the four heavenly messengers. Now, the first three, is, it's pretty hard to figure out, isn't it? Aging, sickness, death, mm-hmm. heavenly messengers, sounds like bad news, mm-hmm. So why were they heavenly messengers? Why were they called a the heavenly messenger? Because in those encounters really Siddhartha realized that all his his surroundings, all his security, all his prestige did not armor him, could not protect him from those life's realities. And his his sight, his glimpse of the wandering monk, who was serene, who was radiant. It was called a Heavenly Messenger because it gave to Siddhartha this sense of possibility. Maybe there was another way of being in this fragile and unpredictable world. The second turning point for Siddhartha, well, it came at a time after he'd left his palace and done a few years of starving and mortifying and abusing himself to the point where he was lying on a riverbank near death. And a young woman came along and she offered to him a drink of rice gruel. And he received that drink and suddenly began to come back to life and really realized that this path of mortification, of of abuse, of austerity, uh, of, of harming his body, his mind in this way, was not the way to go. And it was a gift of kindness. It was a gift of kindness. The third of the turning points, which I think is really important in Siddhartha's story, came also at a time after he'd recovered his health a little bit. And he began to, he remembered a time when he was a small boy and he was sitting on a hillside doing nothing special and looking down and seeing a farmer plowing his fields. And he remembered that there had come to him in that moment such a sense of peace, that there was nothing missing, nothing absent, that it had just suddenly arisen within himself. And remembering that, it, it took that was the memory that took Siddhartha to the Bodhi tree, and took Siddhartha to actually have that turnaround in his own path, where he really realized the futility of resistance, of armoring, of aversion. And he began to stop wanting his life to go away. And Siddhartha came to understand that the path of awakening, the path of compassion, lay within everything that he had previously disdained and rejected and condemned and fled from. So in a way, Siddhartha came full circle, first from fleeing from his body, from his life, as a problem, an obstacle, coming back to see his life, his body, his mind, his heart, his feelings, that if he could not find freedom, compassion, kindness, peace within all of this, he was not going to find it anywhere. Now I think this, this story of ceasing to flee, of, of ceasing to disconnect and resist, of ceasing to condemn and fear and disdain, that, that this describes a crucial change of attitude that is really at the heart of wise mindfulness. The idea of problems, obstacles, imperfections, impossibility are seen differently. The experiences of pain and sorrow and suffering are embraced in a different way, not as imperfections to be fixed or got rid of, not as personal failings the end of struggle and the end of sorrow is not projected into some distant moment, but the understanding that mindfulness is really the path to the present. Learning what it means to bring understanding into places of confusion. Learning what it means to bring peace into moments of of rejection and alienation. Learning what it means to bring compassion into places of, of disconnection and freedom into the places where we feel most bound. It is a movement from transcendence to imminence. Now the Patana Sutta begins with the simple acknowledgement that there is sorrow, there is grief, and there is freedom. And this is captured in perhaps one of the most simple teachings of the Buddha, where he says, I really just teach one thing. There is suffering, and there is the end of suffering. But it's important what we understand about the end of suffering, because it's very easy to romanticize liberation, to romanticize the end of suffering. But actually what the Buddha talked about in the end of suffering was actually the blowing out of the fires, of craving, ill will, and delusion. So he was not talking about nihilism. He was not talking about the erasure of human experience. He was talking about our capacity to be fully human, but without confusion, without craving, without ill will, which is the capacity to find freedom in the midst of all things. And he talked about this freedom being discovered through the path of mindfulness and contemplation. And the way that the Buddha used mindfulness was not as a destination. He didn't talk about mindfulness as being the be-all and end-all, the destination. He talked about the mindfulness as a vehicle, that mindfulness is a vehicle that takes us from suffering and distress to freedom that wise mindfulness, as the Buddha talked about, was not an end in itself, but actually a means to understanding, a means to insight. And it was really the insight born of mindfulness, which allows struggle to come to an end. Now, what is referred to in the Satipatthana Sutta is, of course, wise mindfulness. Now, This is, I think, something very important. I hope I can communicate this right. That wise mindfulness looks in two directions. I think uh, one teacher described it as a a Roman god, Janus, Janus, I think, who looks in both directions. That wise mindfulness looks backwards, in a way, to a foundation of, of ethics, of clear intention of investigation. And wise mindfulness looks forward to wise effort, wise action, wise relationship. So in a sense, mindfulness is bringing together the kind of whole of this path, these foundations that it is rooted in, and the way that wise mindfulness is actually engaging with life engaging with life. And I think for us, this is very important because, you know, we are all engaging with life, whether we wish to or not wish to. And in this life, we are often asked to make ethical choices. We're asked to, to engage in actions, in speech, that heals, that brings an end to suffering, So mindfulness is knitting together this inner world rooted in integrity, sometimes defined as kindness and investigation, and the outer manifestation of that in everything that we do in this life. I think this is very important to see because we we do see that mindfulness itself can be informed by many different factors. You know, I remember years a few years ago when uh, I, my house was burgled. I I think my burglar was or burglars were really mindful. I mean, <laughs> they managed to go through the whole house. You know, match up kind of like receipts with objects and take them all away, you know? I mean, they seem to be pretty, actually, mindful. You know, you see a shoplifter actually needs to be pretty mindful, don't they? they going to get busted, you know. A, you know, a surgeon and a patient can be married together by mindfulness, you know. The hunter and the hunted can be managed together, they would say, by mindfulness, but actually what they're married together is by something else. They're managed together by what in this tradition is called, <laughs> technically, bear attention. And yet that can have a lot of different motivations, can't it? It can have a lot of different motivations. You know, attention can have a lot of different motivations. It can have the motivations to get something and have the motivation to get get rid of something. And you would have to say, well, is that in itself intrinsically liberating? Does it lead to the highest happiness? I doubt if my burglar was that liberated. It actually could have been, but I (laughs) actually doubt it. So why is mindfulness in this context of integrity? Of investigation, of the dedication to the end of pain and suffering is actually enriched and has a direction. It has a context. So, classically or traditionally in this teaching, wise mindfulness carries a couple of different elements. And I hope this is a little technical, but so one of those elements is bear attention. One of those elements of wise mindfulness is bare attention, bringing a clear and calm attitude to every moment of experience, not judging, not reacting, but allowing. So the purpose of that bare attention is actually to illuminate the moment. The purpose of that bare attention, in a way, I would say, is to awaken the world inwardly and outwardly. If I could give you a little example of that. You know, some years ago, I was invited to teach at a place in the desert in Arizona. And I went because everybody had told me how amazing the desert was. And I really wanted to see this for myself. So I arrived at night and I got up in the morning filled with all this anticipation. You know, the desert, the desert, the coming. Desert. I go outside and my heart just fell. Oh, it's just brown. It is brown, you know. And then after days, spending days in the desert and beginning to pay attention, you know, I really then began to notice all of the subtleties of the desert, the, the shifting colors, the shades, the, the variety of wildlife. And it was almost, I could so see so clearly that actually it was mindfulness that had illuminated the world. Now, I'm sure that you've experienced that here, you know, that if you walk outside here and, you know, your mind is filled with preoccupations and ruminations and obsessions, you know, and struggle, well, you know, you could come back in the room and realize you have not seen a single thing. You could go out in that same walking path, exactly the same walking path, with really that sense of really being mindful, really wholehearted, really seeing. And it's like a different world, isn't it? You see what is there. It's like the mindfulness is illuminating, almost awakening the world. So this has the same effect in our bodies, minds, feelings. Bare attention is bringing light into that experience. So what is Previously being obscured by confusion or by anxiety or by agitation is seen. What is previously perhaps been more unconscious in the light of mindfulness is brought into the realm of consciousness. That mindfulness allows us to replace powerful, the power of impulse with clear intention. Now, another aspect of bare attention is that it helps us to discern the difference between our concepts about actuality or our stories about the moment and what actually, the simple truths of the moment. As one of my earliest teachers once said to me, he said, the thought of your mother is not your mother. And we could extend that, couldn't we? The thought that I have about you is not you. The thought of myself is actually not myself. Now, another aspect of wise mindfulness that sits alongside bare attention is clear comprehension. <coughs> so it is understanding the nature of what we are attending to. This is the kind of experiential investigation element that we have talked about, as we attend to our bodies, feelings, emotions, mental states, we actually begin to get a sense of how they arise and pass. We begin to get a sense of the conditions that lead to the arising of different states of experience, and we begin to get a sense of how they can be released we begin to get a sense in our own experience about really what's helpful and what's not helpful, what's skillful and what's not skillful. So that clear comprehension element is actually nurturing this sense of wise discernment. And that wise discernment is teaching us about engaging with the world, engaging with the world in all its dynamics, Now, these two together of bare attention and clear comprehension are the basis, it's said in this path, of understanding, of insight. Now, what I'd like to do is to pick up some of the refrains that are really stressed within the Sadipatthana Sutta that really emphasize the context and the attitude and the wisdom factors of this practice that we're doing here. And attitude here, I would say, is incredibly important because it is one. Attitude is the key element in the transforming power of mindfulness. As you've seen, you know, we can transfer many patterns of our life right into the retreat, can't we? You Now we can spend our whole life arguing, you know, with the retreat, arguing with other people in our minds. I mean, just because we keep silent doesn't mean we stop arguing, does it? (laughs) I mean, we just keep them rolling over, you know, as it keep them going. But what is the attitude that really allows, even amidst those arguments, for us to see more clearly about what leads to suffering, what leads to the end of suffering? Now, one line, one of the refrains that is repeated in this discourse, it begins... Contemplate the body in the body, or contemplate the body as the body. Contemplate feeling in feeling, or contemplate feeling as feeling. Contemplate the mind in the mind, or contemplating the mind as the mind. Having put away covetousness and grief for the world. Well, that is an incredibly awkward translation having put away covetousness and grief for the world. You know, you think, what on earth does that mean? Well, actually, a better, you know, a, a kind of translation we more might relate to more is we contemplate this being learning to put down craving and ill will. So it's not attitudinally neutral here. It's not attitudinally neutral. When we talk about putting down craving and ill will, we're really talking about putting down this world of likes and dislikes that governs so many of our habitual reactions and impulses. I like this. I want this. It flatters me. It enhances me. What does that do? It causes a very contracted mind. I don't like this. I'm afraid of this. I don't want this. Ill will and craving, as we come to see over and over again in our practice, are very rarely the causes of contentment and peace. That's simple. (laughs) They're very rarely the causes of contentment and peace, but instead tend to be the causes of agitation and anxiety. So we learn to put down craving and ill will in relationship to our life, the moment, the body, the mind, feelings. Now, this freedom from ill will and craving is a significant <laughs> part of bare attention, of wise mindfulness, because it's what allows us to open to what is. It's what allows us to be intimate with what is, to be close to, to stand near to what is. Now, it's strange, you know, in this, in, 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 in a lot of Buddhist teaching, that things are put in such negative terms, you know, put down this, release this, let go of this. But I think it's very important to turn, look at the other side of that, that putting down or learning to lay down craving and ill will has enormous implications because it doesn't leave a vacuum behind it. You know, when we learn to lay down craving and ill will, it's not like an empty space where we just become indifferent or apathetic. Instead, putting down the habits of fear and craving and aversion, there emerges the possibility of bringing into our attentiveness the first two wise intentions kindness and compassion. Kindness and compassion emerge in that ground. In the word for Pali, uh, uh, for meditation is bhavana, which literally translated means to bring into being. To bring into being. It's, it, it's what, how meditation or mindfulness, uh, the practice of mindfulness is translated. Bringing into being nurturing those seeds of kindness and compassion that actually lie in all of our hearts. Now this makes a big difference. Our experience then is flavored by affection, by tenderness, by warmth, instead of by resistance or ill will. Pain sorrow, suffering, instead of being greeted with judgment or or anxiety, are embraced with compassion. Now, these intentions are the emerging of the, the flowering, the beginning to flower of those seeds. They set the stage for a journey in which nothing is an obstacle, nothing is a problem. They set the climate for this path in which everything, Everything that arises is greeted with warmth, with interest. It brings into being fearlessness and equanimity, into the exploration of our bodies, minds, feelings. Now, I, I feel there's already a very profound insight involved in our willingness to put down, to begin to cool the fires of ill will and craving. Because the insight is part of really deeply acknowledging the futility and the painfulness of all of the shoulds that can permeate our lives. My body, my mind, my emotions, my life, should, must, needs to be different than it is. Should is a very well used mantra. When we learn to calm that, we begin to open to the simplicity of the moment, to find intimacy with the moment, to find connectedness in places where previously there has been estrangement or alienation. We are learning to befriend. It is a shift in attitude in our hearts and minds from transcendence to imminence. Another line that is repeated through the instructions is to learn to abide independent, not clinging to anything. Now, abiding independent is not implying separation or disconnection or distance, but instead is an exploration of what it means to abide in this body, mind, feeling, life ungoverned, ungoverned, and discovering that it is not the thoughts or the sensations or the emotions that create in us the terrible feeling of being imprisoned or governed. It is the sense, it is clinging and grasping and holding. And we, we begin to get that sense that whatever we cling to in any moment, begins to form a shape of our world and our heart in that moment. If we cling to a thought, we become the thinker. If we cling to a plan, we become the planner. If we cling to a pain, we become the sufferer. If we beca- cling to the te- this, we become the teacher. Tell that to my kids. doesn't work. It's really seeing the imprisonment that comes with the holding, with the clinging. Again, what I mentioned the other day, what we dwell upon becomes a shape of our mind. Because clinging really, moment to moment, holding, identification, is shaping, defining our sense of self and our perceptions. And we we get the sense of how little freedom there is in that. You know, how little freedom there is in that that sense of being so identified. So we cultivate freedom in the midst of clinging. (laughs) We cultivate freedom in the midst of identification, in the midst of holding, in the midst of grasping. Because alongside these first two wise intentions of loving kindness and compassion, there lives the third wise intention, which... I, I know people really hate this word renunciation. I know people tell this shivers up their spine, you know. But it, uh, actually it's very important to understand that in this teaching renunciation is described as the actualization of happiness. Mm-hmm. The actualization of freedom, not as deprivation, not as pushing things away, not as divorcing ourselves from anything, but as the, but as releasing the clinging, releasing the holding releasing the identification, whatever word we use, seeing that that clinging and holding is always synonymous with this sense of tightness and contractedness, mostly painful, like holding a thorn in your hand so tightly and then discovering actually you can open the hand. You can open the hand. And that's what we're learning to do all the time in the practice is just to open the hand to open the hand, not through judgment, not through saying it's wrong or bad, but learning that that is a path of happiness, that's the path of freedom, is learning to, oh, it's a hard lesson. As we cultivate non-clinging, this is actually something we practice. We're cultivating a more spacious and inclusive presence i give you an example. When we sit and walk, like we have to do, done today, we sit and walk amidst a vast mandala of sights and sounds and thoughts and feelings, emotions, arising and passing in every moment like a great river. Now, on the basis of feeling, as we spoke about yesterday, on the basis of pleasant or unpleasant, we can tend to highlight one phenomena over another. And then we begin to contract around it and our world becomes a little bit smaller. It's like if you were sitting in this room and you're sitting here and things are moving along just smoothly, you know, and then a fly comes to land on your nose, you know. And it's it's not particularly pleasant, probably, but you can see how the mind begins to con- isolate that phenomenon, contract around it, and how the world begins to shrink in that moment, mm-hmm. begins to get a little bit smaller. It's the fly, in it. But we do this with a sensation in our body, with a thought that we struggle with, an emotion we dislike. That same shrinking happens, and that's the movement of clinging. That's the moment movement, and in that moment of clinging we kind of lose touch with the quieter whispers in our bodies, our minds, our life, our world in that moment. And the whole process of opening, releasing, is actually learning to expand again, to reclaim that inclusiveness, that wholeness of the moment. So we learn to attend with mindfulness to everything, that every moment when our world is shrinking, every moment when our world is shrinking, and it's within those moments when our world is shrinking and we learn to open, that we really get a sense of what it means to abide independent, not clinging to anything, not governed by anything. It's not an easy path. Now, the third refrain is to contemplate the body and the body, feeling and feeling, mind and mind. And again, this is a radical shift towards an attitude of non-ownership. Not my body, my mind, my feeling, but to contemplate the body in the body, feeling in feeling, mind in mind, to the extent that is necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. Now that's the piece that's important. To the extent that's necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. Because it's it's an invitation to a radical simplifying. Now it's a knowing the difference between our story about the moment and the simple truth of the moment. As it is now. To be able to see the body not with its history, not with its future. Because we see as human beings, you know, we do tend to be storytelling whatevers. You know, we have a story about everything, don't we? You know, we walk outside with a story about the outside, we walk inside with a story about the inside, you know. Story, lots of stories about other people, people we've never met. You know, we have this whole story about them by now. How many people here remain neutral to you? probably not many, and we have a very long story about ourselves, a very long and complicated story about ourselves. And it doesn't always occur for us to question whether our story is true or the way that our story is telling us about who we are. In fact, our story is too often leading us to kind of solidify and try and fix things in place, a world which is constantly in flux and changing and unfolding. So our story, in a way, is always in a state of struggle with the way things actually are. You know, you can you have a difficult meditation, you can see, oh, I'm a bad meditator, I've always been a bad meditator, I've always been useless at everything, in fact, and probably I'll never be good at anything. What's a big story. Where did it start? Not contemplating the body in the body or the mind in the mind, but my body, my mind. Someone annoys us in some small way and everything about them annoys us. You know, years ago I was teaching in in Israel and it was kind of like hard conditions, but like one time I came outside of the office and, and there was this very sad mangy dog Lying beside the door, and I saw it had this huge tumor growing on the top of its head. And it was one of those moments you know, those terrible moments where you're kind of stunned, speechless by something so, so tragic. And you know, there was that moment where I was stunned, speechless. It didn't last. You know, pretty soon I started telling a story, you know, and you know, my story was, you know, how can anybody just leave this dog here with this terrible tumor growing out of its head, and and I'm going to go and, you know, really speak to the people who live in this kibbutz because they're not caring for their animals, and blah, 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 you know, went on all morning, actually, here and there. And I came back a few hours later to come out of the same office, and the dog was sitting up without a tumor. The tumor was a rock that had been lying beside. It was like, Like that whole world had been fabricated. The whole thing was just a fabrication, you know. I sort of got this incredible sense about how easily that can happen, this fabrication that seems so real. And in a way, our our fabrications are the ways that we try to protect ourselves from the unexpected. Now, this teaching is not anti thought. Please don't think this teaching is anti thought. I I really despair when people have that impression that, you know, a sublime meditation is when you have no thoughts. Well, try and get through life without any thoughts. You know, why, you know, thought gets a very, well, of course we need thoughts. You know, thoughts are a source of tremendous joy and creativity and connectedness and value. Thoughts can also be a source of tremendous pain and suffering. But it's not the thoughts, is it? And we're not trying to get to a place where we have no thoughts, please. You know, if you want to do that, take a pill. Don't come on retreat, you know. Um, It's it's like, that's not where we're going. But we do see that some of our storytelling is really there trying to support a view of ourselves and others. And to stop us from being surprised, a way of trying to make the world familiar. But you know what? Stopping being surprised is not a good idea. Because it seems to me that our capacity to really grow and deepen as a human being rests upon our capacity to be surprised. So we're learning to somehow calm the storytellings because this is a source of so much of the fixing, the, the solidifying, of I, of you, of me, of them, of the world. We're learning to calm that down and we begin to just taste, just begin to taste that freedom of in the seeing, just the seeing. In the feeling, just the feeling. In the walking, just the walking. Now, When I talk about letting go of the story, it doesn't mean, again, a tendency towards nihilism. You know, because people imagine, again, in this path, it's all about getting rid of the story or erasing the story. Well, you know, we all have our story in this life, our our past, our experiences. And this story of us, you know, the story of our life, is the basis of can be the source of tremendous creativity and joy. It's how we communicate with the world. It's the source of what we communicate with the world. This story of us, of me, it's not about getting no self. It's about understanding non-self. Vast difference between those two. No-self is nihilism. Non-self is seeing the, the tremendous creativity within this body, this mind, these feelings for communicating compassion, peace, care, sensitivity without being identified with anything at all. When we are able to calm our hearts a little and see underneath the chatter, we begin to listen to the story of life, our more universal story. And when we listen to the story of life It's continuing to teach us, and one of the stories that life teaches us is about the story of change, the story of impermanence. And this is embedded within the Satipatthana Sutta, within this contemplation of body, mind, feeling, everything that appears. See the arising, see the passing. Come to know that deeply come to know it deeply, the change in all things, and come to see the futility and the painfulness of trying to grasp the ungraspable. The futility and the painfulness of trying to control that which is always in a state of change. And Suzuki Roshi, he once said, Impermanence, uh, renunciation is not about getting rid of the things of this world, it's accepting that they pass away accepting that they pass away. Learning to abide in that non-clinging, that non-grasping is learning to abide in the freedom in which craving, ill-will, delusion begins to fade. Begins to fade. You're discovering that freedom of heart that can be present in the midst of all things with profound compassion, with profound kindness, and yet not bound, not bound by anything. And that is really the art of this practice. It is really where this practice is directed to. It is the, really the essence of the, the wise mindfulness that we cultivate moment to moment, liberating the moment, moment to moment. kinda of gone on here a bit. Mm-hmm. We we'll have just a moment quietly together and then we'll have a walking period. Thank you for your attention. So we have a walk-in period now. We'll come back at 9 o'clock for the last sit where we'll continue with the loving-kindness practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.